Happy Wednesday, ladies and gentlemen. It's hump day. It's podcast day. It is episode number 225 of Shut Up and Grind with your host, yours truly, Robert B. Foster. So if you're brand new, we're all about overcoming obstacles. We're about defying the odds and helping you clear the path of whatever is in your way to you reaching your true success. So if you are new, again, if you're joining me on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Help us grow over on that platform. If you're joining me on either of the Facebook pages, please like and share. If you're joining me on any of the podcast forums, please support and review. That'd be greatly appreciated. So today we're going to be talking about inspiring women. And there's going to be a whole lot of other sub-stories that we're going to have in there. But that's that's what the main message is going to be, is about inspiring women to find their strong. All right. So before we dive into that, here's a quick little bit about me. And then I have another great guest that's going to share her experiences to inspire all of you. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of front of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. You've got to know your work. All right, and so today's teachable moment, and then we'll dive into our main topic. So for today's teachable moment, it's all about taking action. And I know it sounds cliche-ish, and everybody says it. Anybody in any type of leadership position says it that you got to take action, but they're they're not wrong. <laughs> you know, so to get to anything that you want to get to in life, you got to take action. I was having a conversation with my daughter the other day about you know, like I've always had these big dreams of being on TV, and I was like, like one day it's going to happen. It's like I got the speaking behind me, I got the audience behind me, you know, I have the camera presence and all that other stuff behind me. Like I just need that one opportunity. And then after I had that conversation with her, I came back down here to my office. I was like, I haven't pitched anybody this week. Like, how is this opportunity going to come if I'm not putting myself out there? So, I mean, today's only Wednesday. So I've been pitching myself Monday and Tuesday. And so far, I've gotten booked on a TV show, a radio show, four podcasts. And I'm going to be writing an article for an international publication. And, and that's just with two days of action. So wh- whatever it is that, that you're holding on to, like if you want to get in better shape, start today. Don't wait till Monday. Start today. If you're looking to get to get seen or discovered, start today. Start getting yourself out there today. Don't worry if you're 100% ready or not because nobody is. You don't need the website built yet. You don't need the fancy graphics. You don't need business cards. Just start today, and then you'll be surprised what opportunities are going to open up for you. And that's today's Teachable Moment. So now we got to get to my guest. She's an author. She's been featured in all kinds of publications. She's got a great story. And this is Faith Jones. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. All right. So where are you joining me from? Las Vegas. Vegas. I was just talking about Vegas earlier this morning in the gym. Awesome. Whereabouts? Uh, well, where in Las Vegas? <laughs> yeah. yeah, ballpark. Because I know the area. I'm just curious. South of the Strip. Okay. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, I've been been there a couple of times. I was talking earlier about, about the Grand Canyon, but I like flying in, into Vegas because you get to do Vegas stuff, you know, but before you head out to the Grand Canyon. So it's Yeah, nice. it's definitely a good there. place uh, if you want to be, well, before COVID. I moved here right before COVID, so uh, <laughs> then everything shut down, but <laughs> it, it does have a lot of perks. <laughs> <laughs> must must make it easier traveling around now without all, all the tourists clogging up the streets. <laughs> oh, they're back. <laughs> they're back. <laughs> Are you, you originally from Nevada? 
No, um, I was born in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, okay. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in Asia uh, for my childhood, Macau, uh, another gambling city, I guess. And I've lived (laughs) all over the world. So I did uh, volunteer work in a lot of different countries and... Um, but that's part of my story that you're going to find out. Yes. Okay. Awesome. So what was it like gr- growing up over there? In Well, I think it's a little uh, tricky to answer that question right off the bat without giving mm-hmm. you a little of the bit of the background. All right. Go ahead. G- give me whatever you need. Who I am. Um, so I actually, uh, the book that's behind me, it's called Sex Cult Nun. That's my book that was just published at the end of last year. And it describes, it's my memoir, it just it describes my upbringing growing up um, and sort of how I got from where I came from to where I am now, which is a corporate attorney, a teacher, a, um, I've been, I help people get independence with their finances, their financial structures, um, surrounding their businesses, corporations, contracts, I worked at, you know, some of the largest law firms in the world. I did international M&A out of Los Angeles and Hong Kong uh, with Skadden Arps and uh, IPOs. So I've had a very uh, interesting career in the last 15 years. But prior to that, I and, and I think one of the things that is what you were saying is so important is you just have to go out and take action. Right. Uh, so many people ask me, how did I get uh, from where I was born? And how I grew up, which um, I was born into a cult. I was born into what became known to a lot of people as a sex cult because of its uh, unorthodox sexual practices. Although it was a fundamental religious movement, religious, Christian religious group. And so uh, my family actually founded this cult. And it was... It grew, it, it was founded in the late 1960s in California, in Huntington Beach, and it grew to over 10,000 members worldwide. Wow. People lived communally They uh, in small communes, which we called homes, in different cities and countries all over the world. Um, it was a very aggressive missionary proselytizing group, so they believed in um Everybody had to drop out fully from system is what they called, you know, regular society. They couldn't hold jobs. They had to survive on donations. So, you know, our living was very, very basic. Um, And one of the core tenets was that you really didn't own anything. You didn't have any property rights. So uh, my grandfather, who founded it and was the, uh, I guess, self-appointed prophet and guru, he uh, preached a message of basically Christian communism, which he, he thought he took from the book of Acts saying, uh, you know, all that believe lived together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods. So uh, that's how they ran the group. Um, now, one of the things I, I did a TEDx talk on this topic. So, um you know, and then we can get into that a little bit more later. But one of the things that really struck me after I left when I was in my early 20s, so I was in this group uh, for my whole upbringing. Um, You know, one of the benefits was I got to live in a lot of different countries and I traveled the world and I, um, you know, I lived in Russia and Kazakhstan and China and uh, Japan and (laughs) Thailand, you know, I was, I went everywhere. But it was um, one of the issues that when I left the group, I didn't understand at the time right? When I was in it, because that was all I'd known. That was all I'd grown up with. But how did these, um, I didn't understand that a lot of the things that I was being subjected to was abuse. I knew that it was painful. I knew that it was difficult. But um, because I didn't understand the accurate, correct principles, which is what I teach now, um, I didn't understand that it was actually abuse. And so, you know, many years later, when I went to college, I actually um, went to college at Georgetown University and then uh, Berkeley Law School. Uh, I began to get more clarity on some of the things that had happened to me, recognizing that, you know, things that had happened to me in forms of like sexual abuse, rape, um, child sexual abuse, 
these things, that those things were really wrong and how and why they were wrong, right? Um, but in my own life, I think a lot of people ask me the question of, you know, well, how did you get from there to here? You know, I mean, we weren't really allowed to be educated. We didn't, uh, so we didn't go to school. We, had, we were homeschooled. Um, I actually put myself through high school with a correspondence course uh, on my own. It was like a Mennonite correspondence course that my mother let me get because we would not be sent to school. So most teenagers in the group didn't actually finish high school. They just basically had a grade school education. Okay. Um, so, you know, there was this a sense of really, if you wanted it, you really had to grab it and do it yourself and maybe uh, not with full approval either, right? So let me ask you quick. My so, passion for education that, that led me to leave the group. So, um, you know, and it wasn't until then that I began to really understand all of this stuff. Okay, let, let me just ask you quick. What was the what was the dynamic like? Because you said there was there was ten thousand people. You were able to live all over the world. I mean, so it was a worldwide group because mm -hmm. you, said, you said it started in California. Like, how did it spread? Uh, well, my grandfather would get these revelations. So my grandfather basically uh, drove and communicated with the group through letters, through the mail. So through publications, and uh, we didn't have, you know, the internet and stuff back then. Yeah. So everything was just sent out. You'd get these mail packets every month or every two weeks, and it would have all the, you know, his, uh, it was like printed, like little printed uh, newsletter type booklets, right? Yeah. And they actually printed um, thousands and thousands of books. My parents were involved in that. That um, was very, very prolific. My grandfather probably wrote over 4,000 letters of these, you know, his teachings, which they'd record and then type up and send out to the group. And so it was all of these, you know, movement revelation type stuff. And that's what kept, and then they would have uh, visiting shepherds that would visit all the homes. So where you lived and how things operated, um, there was, there was a, a sense of unity there in the sense that everybody was following, you know, they were all reading the same stuff at the same time. Um, but because, you know, there were individual homes with their individual leadership, uh, a lot of it could be quite colored. And, and then we're talking different countries. So there's different cultural yeah. aspects that are coming into play. You know, it might be very different in Brazil versus in, you know, Hong Kong. So, um, you know, it was it's an interesting mix. I've, I have to say uh, it's fascinating to me when I went back and wrote this book um, and the book starts when I'm uh we first are escaping from uh, a, a wave of bad publicity, right? These, uh, these uh, reporters found out. So it's also a very secretive group, right? Yeah. So, you know, these reporters found out who my father was, that he was the son of the, you know, the founder and everything. And they were harassing us. And so we had to make this escape in the middle of the night with my father, uh, his two wives, and uh, seven of us children and move out to this farm in the middle of a Chinese village where no foreigners had ever lived. And it was a, like a one room uh, adobe brick, hundred uh, year old Chinese villager house without indoor plumbing. It was an outhouse and um, you know, basically the, the electricity and the water were pirated off the main line. They didn't have municipal city water. Wow. So it was a very different upbringing to kind of start out like like that and be like, wow, OK, people can you can live like this in the most basic form. And then, you know, but of course, over time, we rebuilt the village. We got more of the properties we brought. We literally brought in city water electricity. Um, we got the government to hook up the village. Um, so we did a lot of work in, you know, the 10, 12 years we lived in that village to really transform it. Um, we created a whole farm with lots of animals. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of this crazy story that, uh, which is why I felt people should hear about it. But also um, the, the other aspects of it that I think people can find difficult to read or if people who maybe they've experienced it themselves, you know, like sexual abuse and things like this, I think it can be helpful to, you know, see how well somebody else has been through something 
similar, you know, and at the time they didn't understand what it was and, and why it didn't feel right. Um, you know, and then how do we move on from that? How do we change from that? So that's a big part of my work. So I told you before we went live, I was going to ask you to describe yourself, but I, I think I want to, I want to, I want you to do it twice. It's like kind of, kind of describe yourself from what you just shared versus who you are now. Um, describe like who I was and who I am now. Yeah. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Just how, just how you viewed things. Because like you said, when you were in it, it's tough to see. Because one thing I say on this show and in life all the time is when you're in the fire, you can't see the fire. So it's like when you step out of it, you can actually see how wide it is, how tall it is, you know, so on and so forth. So when you were in the midst of the struggles, how did you view yourself? And then how has that view changed, obviously, since getting out? So I think there's certain aspects of myself that are very much, very much the same. You know, yeah. even from a young age, I, I mean, it's probably 10, 12 years old when I really recognized that. My parents were fallible human beings. They were not, you know, um, necessarily going to be able to take care of me and that I, I had to do it. You know, I mean, there was a point where I had to like step up and become the parent when my, my parents were separated when I was like 12 years old. Um, so I think I learned at a very young age that uh, if... I remember hearing someone say, you know, it doesn't matter what your parents did. Uh, you're the only one that can be responsible for who you are yes. and who you become today. And I really took that to heart. So I think that sense of personal responsibility and just saying, you know what, even if there things are mess, I got to I got to choose what I want to do and be with my life. And I think I've carried that with me through my whole life, that sense. Um, also. There's another thing that I did as a child that I think really impacted how I came through all of that. You know, there was different resilience techniques I used as a child, yes. even then, that I didn't realize I was using until later, many years later, when I studied mm -hmm. psychology and I understood, oh, wow, that's what I was doing. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, like there was a verse in the Bible that says, uh, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And I remember I was just a kid and I would sit there and I'd say, well, I know I love God. So this bad thing that's happening, this thing that's hurting me, you know, it's going to somehow work for my good in the future. And I really believed that. And I would begin to look to a future. I would begin to imagine a future where this thing was good, where this something good had come from this, right? This bad thing. And it's called future pacing, actually. Um, but I didn't know it at the time. I was placing myself in a future where I wasn't in pain any longer. So, so much of what happens when we are in trauma and in fear is that we feel stuck in the pain and in yes. the fear. And we don't see a future. It's like, it's like we're playing the movie of our life and the movie just gets stuck right at that worst moment. And we can't like envision ourselves out. So now I teach people techniques about walking yourself through and then what do I do next? And if the worst happened, right? But I was already doing this as a kid, not recognizing what I was doing, right? But just by following some of these Bible verses that I'd learned. And so I think that those, some of these you know, looking, trying to look at the positive, trying to be grateful for things. I think a lot of that has really helped me in my life. And those are things I carry with me. What are some of the things that are really different, though, is that I was raised to believe we didn't own ourselves. We were quoted this verse that, you know, uh, for you're not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So they would say, well, see, you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. Um, so you need to do what we tell you to do. Hmm. Now, of course, that's a big jump between saying, you know, I owe my allegiance to God and I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> the, the actual historical terms of that verse was don't don't sell yourself into slavery <laughs> because yes. you need to have first allegiance to God. It wasn't that your leadership 
get to say you don't own yourself and therefore you got to do whatever we want you to do, including, you know, um, having sex with men that you don't want to or turning over all of your um, everything you've created. Right. So that was a, a big issue. Nobody owned anything. If you had an inheritance, or you got money. You were supposed to turn that over to the group when we would go out and we would, you know, we would raise money on the streets, busking or, um, you know, asking for donations or things like that. All of that money, I mean, we just didn't even see it. Just all was turned over to whoever the finance man was in the home, right? And then he would, everything was paid for. So this uh, this sense of not having your own self-ownership, autonomy, decision-making capacity, um, I think I always sort of struggled against it a little bit, but I really, really tried because I was told that, you know, that this was God's will. And that was really the stick that they could hold over you. Not only, um, and because I truly loved God and I really did want to please him, you know, this was so uh, traumatic that, that, that internal pull of, you know, I really don't want to do this. I hate this, but I have to force myself to, because this is what they're telling me that God wants. Right. And, um, now how I understand it is like that kind of manipulation, that is the violation, that manipulation against people, spiritual manipulation, um, even fear of punishment in the group. It was fear of public humiliation. If you didn't, uh, you know, you would be called out and they would talk about all of your, uh, failings and, you know, how you're not yielded to God, et cetera. If you weren't doing, um, or sometimes you could even be put on probation and you're restricted and, you know, not allowed to engage in the few fun things we were allowed, like a weekly movie. <laughs> um, so our lives were very regimented, very controlled. And that was uh, an aspect of it that I, as I got older, I began to like feel more and more resistance towards. Um, I did have a strong sense of independence that was developing. So and, and that I certainly do carry with me <laughs> today. <laughs> but, but um, you know, what really helped, helped clarify and change things for me was when I created the framework. And that's what you see behind me. That's also what I go through. I explain in my TEDx talk. It's in the last chapter of the book. And that was really where I came full circle to that moment of of true clarity that helped me to deal with a lot of what had happened to me. Now, I'd already done a lot of healing work. Um, you know, I'm very into like self-help work. I worked with different, you know, self-help techniques and coaches and so on. Um, but when I uncovered this, it was just like a light went on. And these principles are not new. These are principles we really all hold, actually. Yeah. Um, but to have found a way to clarify them and get that clarity on it and make them so simple, there's just these five simple rings of understanding. And when you get, when you understand them, when you understand each sphere of responsibility, autonomy, boundary, and what the principles are that govern those, um, it just ch totally changes your life. It's like, it's like as if, you know how if you when you wear glasses and you don't have them on and you're looking and everything's really blurry, you're not quite <laughs> yeah. sure what's going on, right? <laughs> and then as soon as you like put on a pair of uh, glasses, all of a sudden everything, all the distinctions become clear. You can see the outline, the distinction of every leaf and flower and, you know, you can see the road signs and you can see it all and you're like, oh, now I know where I am. Now I know what's going on. You see? That's exactly what this is. It's like this lens. You hold it up in each situation and it gives you that clarity to see what is actually happening. It makes it much harder for people to deceive you because what's happening in these types of manipulative groups, even manipulative governments, I mean, manipulative institutions, uh, manipulative relationships, abusive relationships, right? I mean, it's not like any of us have not been touched in some way by that. Um, this allows you to actually see what's happening. Like, are they truly, um, is this really a deal that where I feel comfortable? Am I being manipulated? Am I being guilted into something? Is someone applying, I call it undue pressure. That's the legal term in contract that we have when we're talking about blackmail, right? Yeah. If we say somebody is like trying to get you to do something by applying negative pressure, 
so in blackmail, right? You're saying, okay, if we, if you don't uh, pay me this money, I'm going to post these, you know, photos of you on the internet. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's pretty straight up blackmail, right? Yep. <laughs> but in, uh, what has this happen in a spiritual manipulation sense would be, you know, uh, by saying, well, if you don't give us this money, you know, if you don't turn over your money, your time, your body, then God is going to punish you, right? You're going to get sick, you know, they, and these terrible things that they tell you are going to happen to you. Yes. That's spiritual manipulation and blackmail. So, um, and in relationships, right, we have psychologists call it emotional blackmail. It's a term we've all heard of. So, If you love um, me. Yeah. So it really, it flows into every area of our lives. This really is the boundary lines for each part of that. And when I understood that the primary, like the core place it starts is your own self-ownership in your own body. Mm. I own my body, right? And because I had grown up without any sense of boundaries, because I didn't own my body, that's what I was taught, right? My body was there for everybody else to use. Um, I actually had to develop that boundary. I didn't understand where that boundary line existed. And it's true for many women that we are, it doesn't, you don't have to be, grow up in a cult to be raised with these kind of subconscious ideas about what it means to be a woman. I hear it every day. Yeah. So when I really understood and I claimed my self-ownership in my body, I was like, wow, I don't have to do anything if I don't actually want to. Nobody has a right to touch me. They don't have a right to touch my body. They don't have a right to grab my ass. You know, they don't like that is a violation of my property right in my body. So, um, and it doesn't have to be something that hurts you, right? So this is a big issue we have in, you know, people who are survivors of sexual assault, if they go to court or if they, um, you know, if they end up in the legal system, right? Uh, or even just in the court of public opinion, there's this concept of, well, you brought it on yourself, you know, which is horrific because it's, you know, like, oh, well, she was dressing sexy. So she brought it on herself or she was yeah. flirting or, you know, she was kissing him. Right. I'm like, no, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. Your body is your property. You have the absolute right at any moment to say, stop. That's not what I want. Or to if you haven't given express permission right? Yeah. Then that is a violation already. So when you get clear on that principle on that, like you wouldn't say like, oh, well, you left your wallet sitting on the table. So it's fine if I stole it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the same idea. Or you say, oh, well, you painted your car this hot red. So it's okay if I like take it for a joyride. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, no. Right. It doesn't make sense in any form for us <laughs> when we really understand like how property works. No, it's my car. You don't even get to touch it unless I tell you you can. Right. <laughs> so like it just gave me so much more clarity. Um, because as a I was a lawyer at the time, I mean, and and when I and I understood clearly the boundaries and outlines around property, I didn't understand them around my own body. So this framework gave me that clarity to be able to say, okay, now I get it. I wouldn't let someone do that with my cell phone or my car <laughs> or my wallet, right? So, so certainly shouldn't say anything about that with my body, which is my most fundamental property and right, right? Yes. And then all of these things just flow from there. All of our other rights, the rights to what we create, our creations, um, our rights in the deal, the elements of contract that we have the effect, right? It's all just flows lo completely logically and stair-step from that. And it, to me, it just completely clarified. I like to say that everything that we have, we consider, in fact, it, it's actually true. On the back of this is another, on the back of this is another diagram. Cause when I was creating it, I flipped it over cause I'm a lawyer. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I flipped it over and I realized that everything we consider a moral crime fits into one of these circles, mm. everything. So that would be uh, violations of our body, murder, assault, rape, right? Violations of our creations, things like theft, slander, intellectual property infringement, slander because um, our reputation is something of value that we create, yes. right? And then uh, violations of the deal. These are things like fraud, blackmail, breach of contract. 
and then violations of the effect. How much are we responsible for things that we have some contri contribution to, but we don't fully control, you know? So there's, it, it literally fits everything. We're not talking about like regulations and, you know, you know, what side of the road you drive on. Those are, those are not moral issues, right? They differ legitimately in different countries, but all over the world, we call these things crimes yes. in every country, right? So there's this kind of universal sense of us as humans that these things are wrong, that these are violations. And yet we don't speak from this place. We don't clarify it. We don't teach it. And in yes. fact, many of our regulatory laws violate those principles. So, so my, my, my take on that is going back to what you were sharing earlier about being within the cult framework is how, you know, you guys were homeschooled, you know, weren't allowed to have property and stuff. And that's how, that's how they controlled you. And so if we just look at how the world is set up now, again, I was having this talk with, with my daughter yesterday. I was like, it's the same as it was 200 years ago. Just the only difference is, is that they pay us and we can have property now. Because if you think about it, it's the powers that be, they don't want everyone becoming fully self-aware and becoming entrepreneurs and building their own fortune because these billionaires need people to work in their stores. Like Amazon needs workers, Walmart needs workers. You know what I mean? Like all these big places need, need workers. So they educate us enough so we can enter the workforce. Like I actually turned down a speaking gig at a career and technical school because part of my, well, when I was going back and forth with the principal, I was saying, you know, I could talk about confidence. I could talk about this and, you know, casting a vision, all this good stuff. And at the end I said, and I can show them how to take their skills and create another stream of income online. And she was like, oh, uh, we don't, we don't want to discuss that. She's like, she's like our, our expectation for the children is that they either enter the workforce or they go to further education. I said, yeah, but why are you deciding that for them? I was like, they should, they should know that there's another avenue they can take. And she's like, well, no, we'd love to have you come speak, but we don't want you talking about that. So I turned it down. I was like, that's that's insane that you're not going to let these kids know there, there's another way or even in an additional way. Like my son's a mechanic and I'm encouraging him. I was like, start a YouTube channel and just do easy stuff that that's easy for you. But people like me, you know, if I have to change my air filter, say I don't know how. And, and you can just do a very easy how to video get yourself some some subscribers and then make some passive income it's like they don't want us learning that stuff so they can control us keep us in the workforce and keep the elite getting richer uh yes i mean if you've ever <laughs> read uh kiyosaki's conspiracy of the rich right mm. it's a very interesting book i was reading some interesting books recently that dealt with that and that was one of the things that one of these um I guess, founding members said, uh, I'd have to find the exact quote, but basically he, when he was talking, they were talking about the abolition of slavery. Yeah. And he said, uh, well, that's fine. We actually don't mind if they abolish slavery uh, because then we don't actually have to take care of the people. We just have to pay them something and it's going to be the same thing. Yep. So like, they literally said that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like reading this going, wow, we're not taught this in school, right? Nope. Um, so, and part of my work now, along with teaching these foundational principles of life and, you know, relationships, because this is really all about relationships. How do you do good deals? How are you do honest deals? How are you honest in your communication and your personal relationships, right? So that that is the foundation principles of our lives, of everything that we do, actually, the moral foundational principles. Yes. Um, but then the next part of what I do is... Um, understanding how much economic independence keeps you economic dependence keeps you a slave and yeah. it keeps you in bad situations and for a lot of women who don't understand their finances who um uh, maybe they're in bad relationships maybe they've never taken the time to really reclaim that side of themselves and then they they find it very hard to leave so my mother at one point when we were in the group when i was 12 
um, we found ourselves outside the group in the U.S. We came back to the U.S. for a, a trip and, you know, just all kinds of things that happened. It's a very kind of crazy story. But we were on our own outside the group living in a camper and she couldn't support us. I was in parking lots begging um, with a can to get enough money to buy, you know, my baby brother and sister mac and cheese and for us to try to find a campsite for the night. Wow. It's incredibly stressful. And then my mother uh, tried to get a job, but, you know, she hadn't. Uh, she barely finished high school before she joined the group. So she didn't have any, you know, experience. I mean, I think she worked at a call center, but she couldn't make enough there to support us and, you know, find us a place to live and stuff. So, you know, seeing that and seeing that, that she realized, so we, we went back into the group because we couldn't survive on our own. And so, you know, that kind of seeing that happen is one of the things that made me so determined. And when I left, boy, I went for education. Like, you know, I was determined that I was going to be able to support myself, that I was going to have my own stream of income and, and independence. I was not going to be dependent on somebody else like that. Um, now, at the time, I didn't know much about the world or, or what was out here or what was available, right? I just knew what my grandparents had said like go to school and so like, okay i'm gonna go to school do my best at that um but nowadays i tell like my nieces and nephews and stuff i'm always like learn how to sell online learn how to create an independent stream of income so that you can choose to do whatever you want to do um that might not be your passion but it will give you the freedom the economic freedom and a lot of what I teach right now for businesses is, uh, so I'm a corporate attorney. I'm, I specialize in corporate structures and partnerships. And, and there's just an amazing structures that most people don't use, that you can set yourself up in your life, your property, your family, in these very specialized uh, structures that most people are not aware of, that are far more protective than your typical corporation or LLC or S Corp. Um, and so that's part of what I help people to do now is how do you really get that true economic independence, both by setting yourself up in the right structure where you can uh, control your debt, including your tax liability debt, and where you can take that money and invest it in passive uh, investments so that you really are creating economic freedom. So that if something like COVID happens, um, you have that stream of income to live on. If you end up, you know, in a situation where, you know, you're in an abusive relationship or something and you need to get out, you've got a way to take care of yourself and your children. It's that's one of the things that I focus on right now is how do we create that? Cause like you said, the system is not set up and designed to help you do that, to allow you to do that. Um, but you can, it exists. You just have to educate yourself. So I'm all about education. I'm like, educate yourself. When I learn this stuff, I teach it. I have a group called Financial Ninjas. And that's just me educating, saying, okay, these are these really cool structures that you don't, most people don't know about that the wealthy use, that you can use too, and it will transform your financial life. Yeah, and, and that's the key is going to people that have the success that you want. Because even in the fitness world, I see it all the time. People will come in like, oh, well, so-and-so said X, Y, Z. And my first, my first was what? Are they a trainer or a coach? And they're like, no. Like, then stop listening. Stop listening to the people who don't know what they're doing. Like, just because they can't do it doesn't mean you can't do it. You know, it's like people get caught up into that. When you talk about selling online and one of the first things you hear, oh, is it one of those pyramid schemes? It's like, come on, like pyramid schemes haven't been around in decades, you know? So it's like, why are you okay giving your money to Walmart, to Target, to the malls, to Amazon, but like you don't want people to buy from you? <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, the funniest thing. And again, even in the fitness world, you hand some, somebody a burger, they'll say thank you and start eating. You know, you, you hand some, someone like a protein shake, they'll be like, I need to look at this label. You know, it's like, what, what is this? I don't know what this is. I'm like, you just ate the burger and fries without, without thinking about it. But the healthy stuff you're going to question, that, that's just how our minds work as humans. We are funny, funny people. 
<laughs> yeah, that that is true. That is true. We are we are. I mean, the human psyche is very it's very interesting, and I you know I I love to study that. Like our because I mean I don't know if you noticed by the framework that I created, very logical. Yes. I like to think things through <laughs> step by step logically, yeah. and that's why like and I do the same thing. I'm like okay you're making this much in your stock portfolio and it's full of risk. And then there's this over here, which you can invest in insurance without any risk. And you're making the same or more like, hmm? like just because you haven't done it before, doesn't mean it's like a lot of other people and all the banks aren't doing it. Right. Yes. So it's like teaching people, finding what are these fundamental underlying core principles that exist. And one of the things that I do, and like you said, you know, have they done it? Look for people that are actually successful and ask them, not just, uh, and, and there's a trick there though. A lot of times you can't always know, because I know a lot yeah. of these online gurus and stuff, um, a lot of them are clients of mine actually, because in my <laughs> law practice, I work with a lot of them now, because um, I have my own like solo uh, law practice where I uh, worked like as a boutique for some of these guys. Um, but really my focus now is building this whole other side of the business. But the, you know, I, I know them, I see what, I see the back end of what's going on, right? I see all the failures. Yeah. I see all of that. So it's a way where I'm like, hmm, okay. Like you guys, if, if someone hasn't really done it and really achieved and done that consistently, you know, then you need to understand the principles. They would understand the principles of how you do that. It's not just luck, right? A lot yeah. of people feel like, oh, I succeeded here. I made a million dollars. So I'm going to be really good in my relationships. Mm -mm. You ever see that? <laughs> no, you got to get the core principles that underlie each of those. For me, like everything I teach is stuff I do. It's stuff I've done. So if I'm like, sharing with people like a structure or a product is something I've set up for myself. Like I would not, I'm not going to share it unless I am doing it, unless I've done it myself. I'm not like, I, I really firmly believe in that because, you know, uh, you just see so much of that out there, right? It is just, to me, that lacks integrity. Yes. I want to get, I want to get your thoughts on this. So I would say people who are successful, they're motivated to stay successful in most cases. People who have hit rock bottom, they're motivated to get out of being a rock bottom. It's those people who are content. Those people are the biggest pains in the ass to work with because they're not really going without. They may not really be where they want to be financially, but they're okay. It's like, how, how do we sway the okay people? And again, not all of them, because some people are just okay being okay. But it's, well, the people, it's the people who are okay that want more. How do we go about swaying them? You know, A, is it your job? Because mm -hmm. this goes back to personal responsibility. Yes. They have to want it. Yeah. You know, if they're in that zone, a lot of times they're not okay. They are discontent. They're not happy. But they're not willing to work harder for it to get to a better place because, you know, they're okay. They're in survival mode. Now, hey, we all have our own levels of this. I yes. do it myself. There's a certain level of money that I make where I just don't really care. Like money is not my main motivator. Yes. And, you know, what I can do and contribute to the world, that's more of a motivator. As long as I've got enough yes. money to be comfortable. Now, of course, if I'm doing a lot of work and nobody's paying me, eh, it's going to get to a place <laughs> where I'm not happy about that. But uh, but it's not my main motivator. So understand what are your main motivators um, and, and not just things that you think that they should be. Like, how do you actually operate? Analyze yourself. Say, um, when I have a certain amount of money, am I willing to like stay up, burn the midnight oil, kick ass, keep working harder and harder to actually get beyond that amount of money? If no, then money might not be a motivator for you. Then you got to find something else that's going to push you to achieve that next level, right? So, um, you know, and for me, it's oftentimes my passion or my desire to help others. Um, and like right now with what I'm creating, <clears throat> I'm like, this is amazing. I can like 
transform somebody's financial and business life. I can help them defer a huge percentage of taxes where they can then turn around and invest it, right? So to me, that's much more exciting than like the paycheck I get from selling that. <laughs> I love seeing people like light up and get transformed with yes. that. Of course, I appreciate getting paid for it, but you know, understand where your real motivation comes from and work with that, I think. And then I think we also just have to be aware that, you know, the 1% is 1% for a reason, right? Or the 5%, like the people who are willing to put in the work, who are willing to just, who, who keep studying, who keep fighting, like, okay, that one didn't work. I'm going to try this now, right? And it's called grit. <laughs> and that ability to like just keep going yep. uh, despite obstacles and okay, well, I'm going to go around that obstacle. I'm going to overcome that one, right? Um, there's, you know, they're not, they're not the majority. And so if that, those are the people that you're talking to, then that is fantastic. And you can give them the tools and they will take it and run with them. But there's a lot of other people that, like you said, they're just complacent, I think, is a better yes. word than content, because oftentimes they're not content, they're discontent, yes. but they're complacent. So they, another thing that we can do, and, and this is something I've done, right, um, is use numbing techniques. So I see this a lot where people use things like, uh, like marijuana. That's a big one that people use as a, as a numbing technique when their life is not where they want it to be. But they're just, you know, that, and I, and that's why I think the danger of something like that is uh, Netflix, you know, just yeah. watching hours and hours of Netflix. I'm guilty of that, you know, <laughs> sometimes. So there's, there's things that are, you know, I mean, and people use more destructive things like alcohol or drugs or other stuff, but, yeah. um, you know, using that kind of stuff to just kind of numb that pain instead of allowing yourself to really feel the pain and allowing that pain to become the catalyst that pushes you to get out of that bad situation, yes. that pushes you to change your life, right? So psychologists will tell you, you know, if you're feeling that pain, then, you know, allow yourself to feel it. Don't just push it down and try to cover it up and, you know, which I was a master at for many, many years. So I understand that. I think we were all guilty of that one. <laughs> but, you know, our growth is in really allowing ourselves to feel that and listening to ourselves and saying, okay, well, what needs to change then? And then going after that change. Yeah. And when, when you face things, it's, it's, I call, I call it fake, fake problems, and I can't take credit for the term because I heard it in someone else's video. But it's like we, we create what we think this outcome is going to be. So it's like, all right, if I try this entrepreneur thing and then I leave my job and then I fail and then I lose my house and then my wife leaves me. It, no, no, I mean, it's, it's like we just create these doomsday scenarios where I just try to reframe it. It's like, you know, like you were talking about, about investing in risk. And one of the first things people say is, what, what if I lose it all? And I'm like, like, just reframe. What if you triple it? You know, it's like, what if, what if you, if you take this and you're able to help 500 people in the first year and you, and you 2x your income from working full time? It's like, what about those what ifs? It's like, think about all the positive ones. Because whether people believe in a law of attraction or not, it happens. Because if you focus on the negative, that's what you're going to get. If you focus on the positive, that's what you're going to get. Now, there's there really is no no in between. Whatever you zero in on, that's what you're bringing to you. So for the people that say that they don't believe in the law of attraction, those are people who are not where they want to be. <laughs> it's like so even even though you don't believe in it, it's still happening to you. Well, I also um, I would put a caveat being on the logical side, and I have I was you know I I did you know work with Bob Proctor for a while, and mm. and you know, so I definitely saw that whole world, and um, I think there are certain things that that people miss in that world that are very dangerous. Yeah. Um, if they are kind of relying on the law of attraction uh, instead of taking accurate action, mm. right, and that means. Uh, you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to just meditate on this and it's going to come to me, right? Um, you actually need to figure out what are the steps to get there 
and then start taking that. Now, of course, you're going to be more likely to take action if you have a positive attitude, right? Yeah. So it's true in that sense. You're going to be more likely to see opportunities um, if you are looking at it in a positive way. But I've also seen people who try to do that and they are not taking correct action and they're, they just can't get there, yeah. right? So that happens too. So you, you need both. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to... That's why I try to figure that stuff out, right? What are these foundational principles? What are foundational principles in business that you need to understand? Um, And also on me, I also work with risk mitigation. So it's both. The best investors in the world focus very seriously on mitigating risk. They don't just, oh, yay, this new thing, that new thing. No, they're like, okay, I know Mm -hmm. I can invest in this. I'm going to make this amount of return, but I have very little risk, right? They focus on risk mitigation and you can take some small amount of that money, put it into something that's a lot more risky and be like, okay, that's fine. But if I lose that, you know, and, and I tell people the same thing, if they want to become an entrepreneur, I'm like, do that while you have your job, start building that. Once you really have created an income stream for yourself and you say, wow, I can support myself with this. Then think about that. Um, If you quit your job, just because you get inspired at some rah-rah conference (laughs) and you've never made sales, okay? Making sales is the hardest part of being an entrepreneur. It is not like knowing your stuff. It is not being an expert. It is making the sale, right? And you got to practice that. Um, So if you don't, you got to be able to make sales before you quit your job, right? So yes. I think I I have been in this world for many, many years, and I've seen it from all different angles myself, like individually. I've seen other people in it, struggling with it. So I take a more of a, a risk-averse approach, but it's still an approach. You still have to take action, right? Yes. Like, like investing. I educate myself, and then I go and do it, right? I'm not... But for years and years, I didn't. I didn't invest. I was like, I don't really understand it. This seems like a lot of risk, right? But I wasn't educating myself about it. And then I see other people who I educate. I tell them, I hear it all, and they still don't take action. So you need both. You need that ability to dig deep, to research, to understand, or at least identify good experts to listen to. And then you still have to take action. And that's what you're talking about, which is, you know, and that's what you started this podcast with is you got to take action, even if it's a small action. I tell people, even if you just put a hundred bucks into crypto, right, just take a little small action. Even you just put a, you know, some small amount into this, start putting money away into this, you know, a savings account, right? Whatever that is in order to build up that thing you need to invest in that property, but you got to take action eventually. You can't just uh, stay in this uh, yes. constant mode of, well, I don't know enough. I don't understand enough yet, right? Because otherwise you'll never do anything and you'll never get to that point of financial freedom. Yeah, and the key that that you said, because where I was going with, with mine, yeah, no, I'm not one of those just believe it and it's going to show up on your doorstep, right? <laughs> but, but just when you take... When you're taking the positive actions, like you said, the key sentence, you see the opportunities. You know, like the the the, the people that sway in the negatives, you know, you got opportunities like shining down on them, but they just don't see it because they're so buried into the negatives or the problems or the, all the negative what ifs. You know, like when, when I started my gym, I did exactly what you said. I was still managing restaurants and I started it on the side. I was training out of my dirty garage. I was, I had Craigslist and Walmart equipment. Like I didn't have any state-of-the-art treadmills or anything, but what I brought was enthusiasm and passion. And so, and this was right around the time when Planet Fitnesses were popping up all over the place. And one of my clients comes to me, I was only charging 50 bucks a month at the time because I didn't know any better. (laughs) Wow. That's not much. (laughs) But she comes over and she's about to hand me the check. And she's like, before I give this to you, She's like, I just want you to know that they just opened a brand new state-of-the-art plan of fitness. She's like, two minutes from my house. It's $10 a month. She's like, I'm, I'm giving this to you, which is five times more than that. She's like, because you taught me to believe in myself again. 
And it was like at that moment, like you were saying, you know, money's not the motivator. That moment means everything. Now, she hasn't trained with me in years, but it's like she's never going to forget that I helped her believe in herself again. And for me, like I'm never going to forget that moment. You know, like here I am in my garage. You know, it's a garage. Like it wasn't even like one of those nice garages, you know. It was just a (laughs) regular garage with some beat up equipment in it. But I got I got people to, to believe in the message. It was like the message wasn't losing weight. The message wasn't, you know, what size pants can you fit in? Like the message was you're stronger than you think you are. You know, mm. so, now, so now in the coaching world, it's the same thing. It's like you don't have to be the best salesperson. You just have to be able to get people to believe in the message. So if they believe in the message, they'll do business with you. I think like what you said there was really important. There's another aspect of what you said that was very important, which is so many people try to wait until, and I've been guilty of this, try to wait until they think they've got it all sorted and it's just perfect mm-hmm. before they take action, right? You're just like, I grabbed some funky equipment off Craigslist and stuck it in my garage, <laughs> and I said, I'm opening a business, you know? Yep. Right? You weren't like, oh, no, I'm so ashamed and embarrassed. It is my old garage, and the equipment is not very good. And you see, you just you just grabbed what you could get, and you went out, and you just started. Yes. And from that, because that's the taking action. And as you take action, you build confidence. Yes. It doesn't come the other way around. That's a false confidence. When people are there going like, I'm so great, I'm so great, I'm so great, you know? This is is they're trying to hype themselves up. And in their real brain, in the back of their head, it's actually doing the opposite. Because your brain is telling you, well, if you were so great, why would you have to say it? Right? (laughs) You see? So you be able to understand that there's a reverse thing happening when you're doing all of this stuff without taking action. But like I try to tell people, confidence is, well, I know I can brush my teeth because I've done that a lot of times, okay? So <laughs> I'm just going to do this. The first time is going to be crap, right? The next time and the next time. I actually did that with um, with videoing, right? So I really hated being on video. And so I literally forced myself to do it for a year every day to get comfortable with it. And I knew yes. I was going to be like, you know what? First time is not going to be good. That's fine. That's cool, you know? And you just, you, but you know, you're going to get better as you keep yes. working at it. So that's what you did. You started out, you had some success. You had some people who came and said, wow, you changed my life. Thank you. Right. Even with your funky equipment in your garage. <laughs> and then that gave you the confidence because you said, wow, I can get results. So then you kept building it bigger and bigger until yes. you had your own gym. So that's, that's yep. the right way to do it. And I want to identify that because that's very different than what a lot of people do. Yes. Yeah. Especially in the gym world. So many people plunge themselves deep into debt. So once I finally opened a 5,000 square foot facility, I had two, two business partners that helped me, but we, we didn't do the whole shebang, you know, but I had, I think 140 clients going in. So right the day we opened, we were already, already profitable because I was renting space somewhere else. So I can build a clientele, like a build a client base. And then I'd buy a couple of kettlebells. I'd buy a TRX. I'd buy a couple of medicine balls, you know, next month, buy a couple more kettlebells, a couple more medicine balls, you know, some dumbbells. And then just over time, because like what I try to explain to people now is you can always upgrade. What you don't want to do is downgrade. It's like the last thing you want to do is to, you know, you know, lease $500,000 worth of stuff so you can have all this fancy stuff where but you see people with a big crowd of people in a playground training with no equipment (laughs) you know so it's like if the message is right the people will come so yeah but you see you already had sales you brought 140 clients with you to that gym right so before you even opened it you were successful you had already learned how to sell it people were paying you real money for it i mean i go to these conferences like you know these rah-rah law of attraction stuff and I feel like the people are thinking I'm going to leave my job, but they've never sold a single thing. Yeah. Right. You can't do it like that. You got to make sure that you're selling and making money and there's an income stream and you're like, I got this. I know I'm good at this before you walk away from your source of income. <laughs> Otherwise you're just creating a whole new level of stress for yourself. 
and kind of a um, an artificial uh, deadline, right? That I have to be successful at this in six months or I'm going to run out of money, right? That's adding huge stress to the process of just yep. trying to start a new business and just trying to learn how to do sales and get good at what you're doing. You see, you don't have yep. that deadline on yourself gives you that time to to become who you're trying to become. So I think you really did it the right way. I want to commend you. you for that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, I helped a, wo a woman create a podcast also. And same, same. now she, she's a clinical psychologist. So she's a very, very, very smart woman. And she speaks like she's a very, very, very smart woman. <laughs> so I told her, I was like, who? I was like, who is your target audience here? And so, you know, we start going back and forth. I'm like, because... I, I think I'm a pretty smart guy. I said, and I don't understand one word that you just said. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, not one. I was like, like what you just shared would have been great for a psychologist conference where everybody speaks the same language. I was like, but if you want to reach the mainstream people, I was like, you got to bring it down a couple notches. Like when I'm in the gym, I, I just say bicep. I say tricep. You know, like, I don't say that the actual names of the muscles, because nobody's going to know, unless you're in the fitness or medical space, you don't know what the names of the muscles are. You know, so, all right, guys, we're going to stretch out, out out your thighs today. You know, it's like, that, that's all that, that's all they need to know. It's like, you got to get a meet them where they are. Like, you know, like what I was saying earlier about the messaging being right. Like, I had a guy on here. He was big, in, he was big into investing. He's a, a nuclear engineer. And that was like one of my toughest podcasts to do just because with almost everything he said, I couldn't relate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as the host, I, I just kept firing questions. I was like, um, <laughs> I, I was like, so now, I'm like, explain it for the audience. More so explain it for me. <laughs> I was like, because I don't know what the hell you're talking about right now. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we can do another one and I'll talk about structures and investing. <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because, because uh, I, I like to say the most important, one of the most important things is the vehicle that you put your investment in, mm. right? So how fast you're going to get to your de destination? If you put your investment in a, you know, top of the line Range Rover, versus you put it in some little broken down putt putt car. You know, it's it's to make a big difference in how fast you get to that goal. <laughs> okay. yes. So, yes. you know, and, and understanding <laughs> what the difference is, what makes one far more powerful um, than another. Right. Because being able to use tax deferred money. So pre-tax money to invest versus after tax money, where that's a much smaller amount. That's yes. going to exponentially change your timeline. Yes. Yeah, see, I can so, understand that. Huh? <laughs> I said, I can understand that. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff we, we could talk about. Because, okay. um, and then also, like, you know, how you think about different types of investments as well. That's something I've really dug into. And I realize that so many of the things that we are taught traditionally 401ks and this and that and the other, um, they're really not for our benefit. <laughs> yeah, of course. Not. And they actually do not, uh, for most people, for a lot of us, you know, they, they're a far inferior product compared to what you can have out there, what you yes. can get. Yeah. So before we finish up, I just want to share this real quick. So I don't remember the guy's name, but I was on, I was part of a mastermind group and he was a guest speaker and he was talking about, about investing. And so he was like, you know, 20 plus years ago, he's like, I had the opportunity. Well, no, he said I was approached by someone who had this startup company and he asked me if I wanted to be an investor in it. It was in the clothing space, like the clothing space is saturated. He's like, and I just didn't feel good about it. And he's like, that company is under armor. <laughs> he's, he's like, had I invested what he, what he asked me to put in, he said it would have been worth $250 million today. <laughs> like, wow. But yeah. Bet he wishes he could have that one back. <laughs> okay, one of my clients was asked by Jeff Bezos to turn over the shares of his company for a share of Amazon way back before Amazon was profitable. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that didn't happen either. So, yep. you know, it's, <laughs> but that kind of stuff is, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. There's so many others out there. Like, 
like, did you have the tools to really analyze the investment at the time, mm. you know, to understand or, or cause otherwise it might just be like, do I have enough money to just kind of here, you know, take yeah. some, cause you know, mm. nine out of 10 aren't probably going to work. So how do you have the tools to analyze that investment? If you don't, then maybe you're better off not making it. It's yeah, true. You know, it's that's that's the tricky part about it. <laughs> that it's one of those where you wish hindsight wasn't twenty twenty. <laughs> like I don't want to know anything about that portfolio. Nothing. <laughs> All right. So let people let, let people know where, where they can find you. Yeah. So uh, I have. If you you can if you want to learn more about the story. Um, I did an interview with Dr. Oz. There's a bunch of interviews I did uh, more in depth on the book, Sex Cult Nun. Uh, if you can go to the website, sexcultnun.com. Uh, if you want to just reach out to me and talk about some of the stuff we've been talking about regarding investing and structures and, you know, that kind of work side that I do, please just send me an email at faith at faithjones.com. And uh, we can definitely have that conversation. Uh, there's a more on the financial ninja side of of the work I do to help people achieve economic independence. So, uh, yeah, for sure, go to faith at faithjones.com. And I, I'm also on, you know, Instagram. I am Faith Jones. So you can lots of ways. To, there's lots of ways to get a hold of me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. OK. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I learned a lot. Hey, I got a nice face um, page full of notes here in my notebook. So awesome. greatly appreciated. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I do I do panels as well. If you want, want to come, come back again and be on a future panel, I bring back five of my guests. We uh, pick a topic that everyone can speak on, and we have a nice roundtable discussion. And from, from those panels, multiple people, my, myself included, we're doing collaborations together. So excellent. That sounds not, good. Yeah, you never you ne never know what connections you, you're gonna make with these panels. And I'm gonna get you hooked up with some of my podcast friends as well. So awesome. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for the work you're doing, you know, inspiring people to get out there and take action and change their lives. Uh, we need more people like you. Thank so. you. And you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a great day. Bye. All right, bye. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping others break through the barriers that are holding them back. To book Robert B. Foster to speak or to reach out, go to robertbfoster.com. Till next time, shut up and grind.